0: From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Tennessee Watson is an independent radio producer and reporter. She has a story that's going to be our entire episode today, and it starts with a home video. It was recorded when Tennessee was just a kid in the 1980s, growing up in a Virginia suburb.
1: Stand up and do some craft for you. This video of me is from one of my private lessons with my gymnastics coach. Parvez Yusefi. Back when this recording was made, I was about seven years old, and he was in his 40s. That's good. Step? I was a spunky little kid with a lot of attitude. I'd go to school dressed good. up in tights and an oversized off the shoulder t shirt. That's it. I have this huh? tape because cool. my dad brought our camcorder with us one day to the gym. I'm out on the floor, and Yusefi is behind okay. the camera, filming me doing cartwheels.
2: Okay, do cartwheel now, Tanny?
1: You might hear that he has an accent. Go. He's originally from Iran. And he's calling me by my nickname, Tenny. I always felt uncomfortable and uncertain around him. I like the special attention he gave me. But his critiques could be harsh.
2: Do it again. Again? Make it faster. That's good. Do it again. the right way.
1: He said I wasn't disciplined enough and needed to learn focus. He offered to give me one-on-one lessons, which sounded fun. I imagined having the giant trampoline all to myself. It also meant I would spend time alone with him. It was during those lessons that the sexual abuse began. I don't know exactly how long it went on, but I knew it felt bad and wrong. To make it stop, I pretended to lose interest in gymnastics, and we stopped going. I never told anyone, not until I was grown up, because I was scared it was somehow my fault. I carried my secret for years and years, and eventually, I told the police.
0: Tennessee is going to take us along on her journey from victim to survivor to reporter. She investigated her own story and recorded everything that happened for years— Documenting her decision to report her coach and what happened when a police detective and a prosecutor took on her case. It's an intensely personal story, but it's also one that looks at how the system handles cases like hers and the consequences for victims of sexual abuse everywhere. We should warn you there will be a description of the abuse. This is not a story for all listeners.
1: As I got older, what happened would occasionally come to mind, and I knew it wasn't right. But I didn't know what to do about it. When I was in my mid-twenties, I was working as a radio producer, and I started making recordings of myself. It's now 12.33 on November 10th. I guess it's really hard to figure out where to start. I think it was a way to coax myself into going public about the abuse. I have all of the lights on in my apartment. Um, I've sort of, like, checked all the nooks and crannies to make sure that there's no one hiding here, and... I couldn't make myself say exactly what had happened out loud. It was hard enough just to say something happened. It's Kind of scary to, to record it and document it and make it permanent. But it's really important. I put those recordings on a shelf. A couple years later, my dad came to visit me in Washington, DC, where I'd gone to live. Every time you've come to visit me, I've thought about having this conversation, and something else better always comes along. Mm-hmm. I'd already told my dad that Yusef had sexually abused me. I'd called him and told him on the phone back in college. Not any details, just that it happened. He'd asked me what I wanted to do about it, and at that point, I didn't know, but now I needed his help to deal with it. And I would really, part of me would really just rather avoid this topic for the rest of my life, but I can't avoid it. You know, it always comes up again and again.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know how you, I don't know how you let go of it.
1: My dad's an ex-journalist in his late 60s. I usually call him by his first name, Bill. My mom died when I was 16. So since then, it's just been me and Bill. Since I called you and told you, has it come up? I mean, do you think about it? Yeah. Yeah, I will.
2: In a way, you can't help but feel sort of like you failed as a father. Your whole job is to protect your daughter. And you miss this. You missed it completely. So I kind of want to take it and put it away. Just take that failure and put it away. But you can't.
1: Yeah. I wanted to confront what had happened head on. I asked my dad to help me take the first step to find out if the gym was still open.
2: I wonder if it even exists anymore. I don't know. I've,
1: I've never looked it up. That night, we went for it. I gotta do it, you know? Gotta do it. Okay. All right. GMS Gymnastics. They have a website. Should we click on it? Sure. GMS kids. Oh my God. Please don't have a picture of him on there. My eyes are closed. If you see him, will you let me know so I don't have to look? As I typed, my dad was sitting across the room. God. He got up to put his hand on my shoulder, and we peered at the screen together. Should we click on staff bios? Sure. Oh God. (laughs) Yousefi was still running the gym in Manassas, Virginia. I'm cringing right now. I'm cringing. It was almost midnight but my dad and I decided to drive out there. You wanna come? Yeah. The gym was in the same cinder block building, tucked behind some big box stores. I stood in front of it wondering, How could somebody who did what he did to me still be in business 25 years later?
2: Looks just like it did 20 years ago. Yeah. Two decades. What I'm thinking is, is the same thing still happening?
1: I wondered that too. Was Yusefi still abusing kids? How many other people like me were out there trying to deal with what he'd done to them? I wasn't ready to confront him. I was still afraid about how people would react, how he would react. Right after this visit to the gym, I moved to New York City. The distance took some pressure off me to decide what to do. It took me three years to take the next step. I learned that he started another side business, working with disabled kids one-on-one doing something called sensory motor integration therapy i called Yusefi and said i was doing a documentary on healing and injury on how childhood injuries can affect us as adults i asked if i could interview him and he invited me to the gym when i arrived there were a couple parents in the waiting area and a handful of kids on the floor, bouncing on trampolines, rolling around on those giant exercise balls. Yusefi walked out with a kid to the waiting area and then brought me back to his office. It was filled with thank you cards and kids art. He looked the same as I remembered, still super fit, but now with more gray hair. Okay,
2: you said you wanna record everything?
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I'm a radio producer, so, mm-hmm. and I'm a, when, you, when I got a note, yeah, and then it said Watson, because I, I had a You probably student. knew me as Tenny, though, that might have been what Gen- you
2: Jenny Watson. Tenny. Tenny Watson, probably. Yeah. I focus on my audio recorder,
1: getting good levels, and that keeps me from totally freaking out. I started asking him about old wounds and healing hoping oh, really? he'd say something that would give me a way to bring up the abuse. If there are certain patterns that are set from the time that you're a kid and, and then as an adult, how do you sort of disrupt that? And, and, and can you like rework yourself so that you're more integrated and physically function better? It depends
3: on the, how much fear you created. If you psychologically scarred, by those injuries, it's so difficult to go back to the same, like someone from diving, for instance. Height involved, speed involved, for instance.
2: Like if on, the, on the high bar, giant. Giant has lots of speed, right?
1: If someone- I kept the interview going, sizing him up. We talked about a lot of different kinds of injuries, but I never brought up the abuse. After that day, seeing him in a gym full of kids, I realized this was bigger than what I could handle on my own. I felt like I had no choice. I had to call the police and tell them what I knew. I wasn't calling to press charges. I didn't even know if what my coach had done to me was technically illegal. Good morning, Sergeant Brown. Um, I got your phone number from the- I called someone at a special victims unit in Virginia. And My name is Tennessee Watson, and um, I'm calling to report report a crime so yeah if you could give me a call back that would be great
0: when tennessee left that message she had no idea if anyone would even call her back but that phone call set off a big chain of events which is where we'll pick up her story in a minute you're listening to reveal Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Reporter Tennessee Watson has been telling us a story of how she first reported that her gymnastics coach had sexually abused her as a child. People who are victims of this kind of abuse often hear a refrain, come forward and name your abuser. Justice will be done. But actually, we don't usually get to hear what happens next. That's what we're about to get into. But I should let you know, it includes a graphic account of sexual abuse. We pick up as Tennessee, at age 32, has just made a police report. This was in 2013. She flew from New York City to Virginia to meet a detective named Kimberly Norton. In this
4: room here, um, I could just have you sit on that side because.
1: Detective a little... Norton wore her dark hair in a long braid. She was strong and compact looked like she'd be hard to knock over. I found out later she was a military police officer before she became a county detective. My
4: card, so this is my business card. That's the case number that okay. you will always refer to when you call me or something, if it's like a year later, just to refresh my memory. Okay.
1: This was getting more serious than I had anticipated. Norton had brought me up to an interview room, cinder block walls, a simple table, and a couple of chairs. There was mirrored glass to an observation area. She agreed to let me record our conversation.
4: And I have your name as Tennessee Watson. It's two N's, two S's, two E's. Correct. Just like the state. Yeah.
1: When I called the police, I wasn't even sure what happened was a crime, and I figured it was too late. But Norton told me that in Virginia, there's no statute of limitations on felony sexual abuse. Yusefi could still be prosecuted.
4: Tell me the first memory that you have of something that you felt uncomfortable with and what that. Uh, memory
1: was, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of the the sexual abuse that I, I was about to say out loud to Norton, things that I'd only thought in my head. I mean, I think, I'd never told anyone, definitely- even my parents, the details of exactly what Yusefi had done. He had set up this mat, a floor mat, but that. He could prop up and explaining to me that because I had trouble concentrating and focusing, and they didn't want me to be distracted, that I had to stretch with him behind the mat. Yousefi used to make a big deal out of how I had trouble concentrating and focusing. The mat, he said, was so I wouldn't be distracted by my dad, who came to my lessons with me. But really, the mat was to hide what was happening. Yousefi would start a stretching routine with me and then ask me to sit on the floor across from him with my legs wide open in a split. He got me into that position and then sort of, like, stuck there. And it was in that moment when he would sort of be like, oh, your leotard is too big. And in order to show me how big it was, slide his hands into my leotard. My, and my legs are, like, spread wide open in front of them, um, in this really compromising position. Um, but he would rub my labia, the outside of my vagina, like, stroke my body with his hand.
4: At that moment, did you feel uncomfortable at that age? Do yeah. You, know, you already felt yeah. like this was something that shouldn't have been happening? Yeah.
1: I mean, I remember having this sort of, like, deeply shameful... And slash sick feeling, you know, knowing it was wrong, not knowing exactly what to do. Um, Would it always be the same? Same parameters. The The mat. The mat would be up. The mat was up. Finally telling someone exactly what happened, all the details felt really good. And I was telling someone who could actually do something about it. As a kid, I trusted my coach. I wanted to trust him. Norton told me this is typical of kids who are sexually abused. Most of them know their abuser. An abuser will create a trusting relationship, what's called grooming, not just with a kid, but with their parents, too. Yusefi did that with my dad. He invited him to use the gym to work out and gave him exercises to strengthen his bad knees. I told Norton that. I mean, it's hard to admit, but... I think that there is a really sort of optimistic part of me and also the sort of tenacious part of me that's like, this won't happen again. Mm -hmm. You know, like almost giving an adult who I trust the benefit of the doubt, that the first time that it felt weird and wrong, Mm -hmm. that, that it was a mistake and that it wouldn't be a thing that would happen again. Now, as an adult, I was thinking about all the kids he had access to who might be going through the same thing I did. You know, if he, if he lived at the end of a dirt road and never saw a kid, then I don't know if I would be sitting here. But the fact that he isn't isolated, you know, the fact that he does still work with young people. And if he said to me, you were the only one, I mean, I don't know what I would do, but if he, if, 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 he, if he could say that to me, if I could know that I was the only one, right. then I might walk away. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, <laughs> don't do it again,
4: you know? How do you feel when
1: At this point, this right words, when I got really um, emotional, Detective Norton suggested that we call Yousefi kind of right then today. and get him to take responsibility or apologize she'd record the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I'd I like to try.
4: So let's do that now. Okay. This goes in on the phone, I mean, wherever you put your ear up to, like right here. Oh. And then put the phone up to your ear. Oh. And that's okay. it. And whenever you're ready.
1: Okay. Hello? Hi, is this Dr. Yusefi? Hey, this is Tennessee Watson calling you again. Um, I came and interviewed you uh, last February, I think it was, as well.
2: Yeah, right, 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 right.
1: I was holding the recorder up to the phone, so it's a little hard to hear you, Sefi. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you very much. Um, I'm calling because there was, uh, when I interviewed you, There was something that I wanted to talk about, but I I didn't really get the chance to talk about. Um, And um, I've been dealing with the impact of um, actions that you took when I was one of your students. Um, And I'm calling to see if um, I could get an apology for what you did. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. Do you want me to tell you what I'm talking about? Please. Yeah. Please. Um, I remember you doing the straddle stretch with me and you reaching forward and telling me repeatedly that my leotard was too big and you showed me in, that my leotard was too big by sliding your fingers in between my genitals and my leotard. That is what I know. He has the same response to everything that I ask him. That he has no clue what I'm talking about. That is what I know you did. Okay,
2: i never, ever, ever, ever never done such a thing to anyone Mr. Watson. Jeez.
1: He said he had never ever done such a thing to anyone.
2: i never done such a thing to
1: anyone. Never ever. Watson. didn't admit to anything. In fact, by the end of the call, he was denying I was ever even his student. This is a point where a lot of cases like mine stop. I reported Yusefi to the police, I tried the sting phone call, but we didn't get a confession or even an apology. It felt like a dead end. But my case didn't stop because of a woman named Christina Robinson. Christina Robinson in the Commonwealth Attorney's office? Second floor. OK, great. Mm-hmm. Robinson is an assistant prosecutor in Prince William County, Virginia. She has long blonde hair and dresses pretty casual, but Robinson keeps a black blazer and a pair of serious heels under her desk just in case. Her office in the courthouse has a tan leather couch, which you can hardly see under the stacks of files. There are papers everywhere, on the couch, the desk, the floor.
3: Oh, look, it is right. It's right there on the top.
1: She remembers getting the call
3: about my case from Detective Norton. I think it was one of these, well, Christy, we kind of have a doozy, and we're probably going to bring out other victims. Because in a school setting, in a gym setting, in any kind of setting where adults are supervising children,
1: if there's one victim, often there's more. Robinson thought this could turn into a much larger case. But even if it didn't, she told me she could legally charge you, Yusefi, just with my account of what happened.
3: Uh, let me explain this to you. In Virginia, the testimony of a victim, if believed, is enough for a conviction, okay? If believed. That's the tough part. The reality of
1: trying a case before a jury is it's usually not enough. Robinson was already thinking ahead to what might happen at a trial. A jury needs proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the crime happened. They want physical evidence, injuries, DNA, blood swabs, all the stuff you see on crime shows. But with child sex abuse cases, a lot of the time, there is no physical evidence. There is no force used. There are no bruises, because kids are groomed to trust their abuser. And with a case like mine far in the past, the best Christina Robinson could do is find a way to prove that the abuse could have happened.
3: So what we always want to look at is for corroboration, whether it's a five-year-old that disclosed something that just happened the night before, Or if it's a 20-year-old that is disclosing something that happened when they were five. So a lot of times it's me ferreting out and saying, what else is there?
1: She asked me if I had check stubs or other records of payment for the private lessons. A photo of the two of us together. I didn't have any of that stuff. I hadn't found that old home movie of me at the gym back then. I didn't even remember it existed. So my best hope, and also my worst fear, was that Giuseppe had other victims. Detective Norton went to police departments all around Virginia hunting for police reports about Yusefi. In Arlington County, just one county over, she found one. In 1997, a woman who was a little older than me reported to police that Yussefi had sexually abused her in the 1980s. That case had never been prosecuted. And because it was in another county, Christina Robinson wouldn't be able to use the police report as evidence. We were getting close to running out of options. We need to get past
3: a certain point so that the media at least knows about it, because I want to ferret out if there are other victims.
1: Going on my testimony alone, without any other evidence, Robinson decided to charge Yusefi.
2: Virginia gymnastics coach is behind
0: bars charged with aggravated sexual battery. Parvis Yusefi is accused of abusing a student starting when she was six years old. Yusefi
1: was in jail for two days before he was released on bond. A couple days after the arrest hit the news, two more women came forward in Maryland. They'd gone to the same school where Yusefi was their gym teacher. They said they'd both been touched inappropriately by him, and they'd tried to bring charges in the 1980s when they were kids. Here's Christina Robinson again.
3: There were two young ladies who actually had reported the things very close in time to when they had happened. And why Maryland did nothing about it then, I don't know, and I can't
1: answer that. Robinson was hoping there was a way for those other victims to testify in my case.
3: When I tried to get in touch with at least one of them, the response was, I'm done dealing with this even though I came forward to corroborate, I'm done dealing with this, I can't face it anymore. And that also is not an uncommon reaction. Sometimes
1: people will just shut down. A date was set for the trial, June 8th, 2015, a year away. At this point, a lot of the reservations I had about the criminal justice process flew out the window. They believed me and they were taking it seriously. I was like, oh wow, this is for real. But then at the preliminary hearing, none of the other victims were there. I realized it was just going to be me facing Yusefi in the courtroom with our lawyers. It was the first time I'd seen him since the interview at the gym. He looked straight ahead and didn't make eye contact with me. Yusefi's defense attorney cross-examined me for over an hour while Yusefi watched. He asked me about details I didn't remember, like, the exact months the abuse happened. Every time I said, I don't know, I was like, damn, he's getting me. It was really defeating. It was a taste of how hard the trial was going to be. Only there would be 12 jurors scrutinizing me too. Nine months went by. I was teaching documentary production to teenagers in New York City. In May of 2015, I told my boss I was going to miss three days of work. I sent out emails to friends asking them to come to the trial. I wanted to balance that Yousefi side of the courtroom with my own posse of people. I heard the defense attorney had gathered hundreds of letters of support for Yusefi, and they had 20 character witnesses lined up. On the other side was me and my dad and Detective Norton. I was planning to drive to Virginia early on Friday morning. On Thursday night, I got a call from Christina Robinson
3: things Just, you know, as I was analyzing and thinking about this case and
1: preparing, just... She sounded you know, like she, she was about to give me some bad news.
3: I can never predict exactly what a jury's going to do, but I just could, can't see them saying hey, the memory of a young woman in her 30s remembering something that happened when she was six or seven years old is enough. Beyond a reasonable
1: doubt. She but said she'd bad. gone to her boss, and he'd said, you're going to lose. There's no way you're going to win, and I want you to work out a plea deal. So she was going to offer you Yousefi a lesser charge. Contributing to the delinquency of a minor is a misdemeanor. It's kind of a catch-all charge for adults exposing a kid to something that might harm them, like buying a kid a six-pack of beer. His original charge was a felony, with the potential for up to 20 years of jail time. If he took Christina's deal, you would get just a year of probation. I didn't want to go along with this, but it wasn't up to me. And at least he'd be away from kids for a year. Okay. Okay.
3: Uh, I'm still willing to answer any follow-up questions that you have, okay?
1: Okay. All
3: right, thank you, Tennessee.
1: Have a good night. Bye. Bye. You too, Bye. Bye. As soon as I hung up with Robinson, I called my best friend. Hey. Hi, Posner. What's up? They're forcing a plea. They're not not giving me the option to go to trial. I just got off the phone with the prosecutor. Oh, God. What happened? I mean, it's like, I don't really understand it. She sounds like so fucking nice and like her heart is in the right place, but she basically said that like, she's like, you don't actually have a choice. I was upset, but not because I necessarily wanted to go through the trial or see a harsher punishment. I was upset because I had a deep fear that this whole thing would become just another buried police report for another victim to find a decade from now. Christina Robinson told me my case was challenging to put in front of a jury because the crime had occurred 27 years earlier. But the other three women had reported Yusefi when they were kids, and nothing was done then either.
0: So, what happened to those other cases? And how often do cases like this just go nowhere? I
3: don't even know how you look at that big picture, there's no like record keeping within this office that after I do something with a case I say okay this is my statistics and this is what the ultimate resolution of the case is.
0: That's coming up next on reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Shira and I want to talk to you about something that's very personal, your body. Remember,
2: it's your body and no one should touch you in a way that you feel is wrong.
0: From the time they're little, kids across America have this message drilled into them. If you've been touched that way, don't be ashamed. Tell someone you trust, like your parents, your doctor, your teacher, or counselor. We say to kids, tell someone and we'll take action will protect you, but that promise doesn't always come to pass. When she was 32 years old, Tennessee Watson told the police that she had been sexually abused by her gymnastics coach when she was just a child, back in the 1980s. Three other women had reported the same man, Parviz Yousefi, but their cases didn't lead to any charges. In Tennessee's case, Yousefi was arrested, but he never went to trial. Tennessee picks up the story on the day of her coach's plea hearing.
1: I went with my dad to the courthouse in Manassas, Virginia. Instead of a trial, there was a hearing. Victims don't usually make a statement at hearings like this, but I insisted on being able to speak. I wasn't allowed to record inside the courtroom that day, but I said that I'd reported Yusefi to the police to protect other kids. I hoped that Yusefi would get help to prevent this from happening again. I wanted everyone there to know how hard it was to feel like the burden of taking action was all on me. My dad was there. Watching me on the stand.
2: Um, I think more than anything else, I was looking at my 34 year old daughter and listening to my 34 year old daughter and seeing my seven year old daughter. And that was what was tough because I'd never heard her tell the story. Um, I knew when it occurred, I knew where it occurred. But I had never heard her story. So I was very, very focused on that.
1: It was scary but powerful to finally get my story out in the open, but Yusefi's lawyer got the last word. He didn't even bother to deny the details of the abuse. Instead, in his summation, he discredited my entire account by saying that I'd never been at the gym with Yusefi. By this point, my dad was seething.
2: They were together in
1: that gym.
2: That He was giving her private lessons. I paid for them. I know that his summation was not true.
1: If there'd been a trial, the statements made by me and my dad would have been a part of the public record, even if we'd lost.
2: I would have been able to stand there and corroborate her testimony in front of the judge and say, yes, indeed, this did happen.
1: When I walked out of the courthouse that day, I wasn't sure how to make sense of it. Parvez Yusefi got just a year of probation. The man who'd molested me behind a mat on a gym floor when I was seven years old was told he had to stay away from kids for 12 months, he'd go to counseling, and as long as he didn't violate the terms of his probation, at the end of that time, he'd be free to work with kids again. When I told people what happened, they couldn't believe the prosecutor had let Yusefi off so easy. So, what did happen? Was this a normal outcome I should have expected the whole time?
3: How are you? I'm doing pretty good.
1: To try to figure it all out, I went back to my prosecutor, Christina Robinson.
3: I felt frustrated with the outcome of your case. I felt frustrated.
1: I was frustrated, too. I felt robbed of my chance to take on Yusefi directly. Going to trial would have been a giant stamp of approval, saying that we as a society agree that sex abuse is a problem and that Yusefi deserved to be held accountable.
3: I wanted to have a permanent conviction of something on his record. I, and that's where I come back to, it was, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed, but
1: I still don't think we would have won anything at trial. But actually, a lot of child sex abuse cases in Virginia end like this with no trial and a plea bargain instead, with reduced charges and little or no jail time. That's according to Camille Cooper, a researcher at an organization called Protect that pushes for a stronger response to child abuse. Cooper has found that the people driving these weak outcomes are prosecutors.
2: Really, the prosecutor is the one that sets the level of priority in his
1: in his or her community. You know, the buck stops with him. He can He can reject a case just because he doesn't want to do it. And prosecutors don't have to explain their individual decisions.
3: No state that I'm aware of has a statewide data system where where you can look at what prosecutors are doing in every district
1: statistically and make some sense of what's going on. So the prosecutor's office, where all the important decisions are made, is kind of a black hole. There's no way to say, this many reports came in, here's how many went to the police, And then here's how many the prosecutor accepted and actually brought to trial. There's no way to connect the dots there. But I wanted to connect the dots, at least in the county where my case was handled. I worked with the Investigative Reporting Workshop at American University and Reveal's data team. We looked at thousands of child sex abuse cases going back 15 years in Prince William County. It was impossible to track each case all the way through the system. So, to a large degree, we still couldn't see much of what was going on. But we did find that about half of reported cases didn't make it past the police. Some were closed for lack of evidence, and some were rejected by the prosecutor. Why were those cases rejected? To find out, I went to Christina Robinson's boss, Paul Ebert. He's the one who calls the shots for Prince William County, and he's the one who told Robinson she had to offer a plea deal to Yusefi. Nice to see you. Great to meet you. When I went to talk to Ebert, I expected a stern man in a power suit. Instead, I got kind of a Wizard of Oz feeling. The man behind the curtain was an elderly gentleman in khakis and a cotton polo shirt. He's been in office a long time.
2: Since Moby Dick was a minor, 50 years.
1: Technically, it's 48 years. Ebert is Virginia's longest-serving prosecutor. When he last ran for re-election, one of his platforms was that he's tough on crime that affects women and children. His office does have five special prosecutors who work on child sex abuse cases. But Ebert says he doesn't keep track of how many cases his office decides to prosecute versus how many they turn down.
2: I I try not to be influenced by the public. I try to do what what I think is right under the circumstances. Lots of times the public doesn't understand. They don't know the facts. They don't know the law. And that's what I'm elected to do. And if the public doesn't doesn't like what I do, well, they kick me out of office. That's our system.
1: But given the fact that there's little transparency, the idea that voters will take action if they're dissatisfied is a little far-fetched. Rose Corrigan is a researcher at Drexel University's law school in Philadelphia. She looked into how prosecutors treat sexual assault cases all over the country. It was so frustrating to see the enormous, ongoing, and often unacknowledged problems Corrigan traveled to six different states interviewing victim advocates. They're the people who help victims navigate reporting to the police and dealing with the prosecutor. So I was talking
3: with one advocate uh, in Kansas, and I was asking her about uh, their prosecutor in sexual assault cases. And she said, "Um, we don't prosecute sexual assault out here. She had been there, I think, for about 10 years and their prosecutor had literally never brought a sexual assault
1: charge. That was one extreme. And on the other end of the spectrum, there was a hopeful surprise in Corrigan's research. A small group of prosecutors scattered around the country who were going above and beyond. They were prosecutors who seemed to be unusually driven to um, seek justice for victims of sexual violence. Corrigan says that prosecutors like this are rare, and Christina Robinson fits the profile. I'd been thinking Robinson let Yusefi off easy, but maybe she'd squeezed everything she could have out of my case, with nothing to go on besides my testimony.
3: My inclination, I think, is usually to charge if I can. And I think that that's probably different from a lot of people um,
1: that do this job. Robinson's willing to charge even with the risk of eventually losing at trial which sets her apart from many prosecutors. And they may think that
3: what I'm doing is overreaching or trying to press a case that maybe can't be proven, but I get angry. I get angry at other prosecutors because they don't understand how important
1: this is. Other victims did speak out when they heard about my case, but those reports were outside Robinson's jurisdiction. One of them, right next door in Arlington County. My
3: name is Theo Stamos, and I am the commonwealth's attorney for Arlington County and the city of
1: Falls Church in Virginia. Theo Stamos's office didn't charge Yusefi. She wouldn't comment on why not. But when asked to talk hypothetically about my case, where it was only my testimony against the abuser, would she have prosecuted him? It would be a
3: very odd situation where I would authorize a prosecution to go forward against that individual. I'm not saying it can't be done. But absent an admission by um, the defendant um, or a confession to law enforcement,
1: it's virtually impossible to go forward. So for Stamos, a victim's word alone just isn't enough. And charging a case based on that isn't right.
3: I think that that's a miscarriage of justice. I think that that's a real problem for the community if you have prosecutors who feel they need to do something and go forward when they really know in their hearts that there's no way anyone's going to convict this guy.
1: But if prosecutors won't put these cases before a jury, my word, my testimony, and the testimony of other victims won't get heard. That leaves us with no power to convince jurors and no power against our abusers. The woman who made the police reports about Yusefi in Arlington County was named Gina Dodd. Gina grew up one town over from me. Yusefi was her coach, too. She was about 10 in the early 1980s when he abused her. She told a counselor at her school, and the counselor contacted the police, but her parents didn't push for prosecution. They were scared to put her through a trial where she'd have to testify on the stand. But Gina couldn't put it behind her. So more than a decade later, in 1997, she brought the case to the police again. Her final attempt to get Arlington County to take action was when she heard about my case. I heard Gina wanted to talk to me, but I waited too long to call. On May 22, 2014, Gina Dodd died. I reached out to her parents to find out what happened. They didn't want to talk for this story. It was too painful for them. But they introduced me to Becky Newton, one of Gina's dear friends, I called her at her home in Little Rock, Arkansas. She says Gina stood out in the crowd the first time they met, at church.
5: She was what I called my hippie friend, and I used the word hippie with the greatest affection. It was clear that she kind of lived outside the box, and she made me laugh right away.
1: Becky says Gina had an edgy sense of humor. She spent years working with rescue animals. In one photo I saw, Gina's hugging a white pit bull and smiling. But Becky says inside, she struggled because of the abuse. It was
5: huge. I think it impacted every aspect of her life. I think it was um, just this incredible weight that she was never meant to carry as a little girl, that she was never meant to carry as a big girl and as a woman. Um, But she did, just this this heaviness, this weight and this dark cloud that she carried around.
1: To cope, Gina started using drugs. She struggled with addiction most of her adult life. In her early 20s, Gina got a job at Starbucks near where she grew up. Yusefi began coming in regularly for coffee. After seeing him a bunch of times, Becky says she couldn't take it anymore.
5: At one point, before she quit, she actually looked him in the eye and said, I just want you to know
1: you ruined my life. That's when Gina first decided to go back to the police. In 1997, she tried a sting phone call with the help of a detective, but it didn't go anywhere. But in 2013, when I brought my case, detectives found Gina's police report and called her. Becky remembers that day.
5: She was just so excited because she had gotten the call that, that and she, you know, had been informed about you, informed that they were um, looking at pursuing the case, and just a deep sense of, of relief that this might actually be pushed forward this time. And, and then what happened? There was just some resistance in pursuing the case.
1: I remember that Kimberly Norton told me Arlington County was reluctant to take the case because Gina wasn't a great witness. It might have been her drug use.
5: Every time she brought herself to a place to be able to confront this, to be able to be honest about it, to voice what happened, and then nothing was done, I think the weight just grew. So, um, and then, you know, ultimately, Gina's death
1: her. It makes me so mad and sad.
5: <laughs> me too. And she would have loved you, Tennessee. She would have loved the fight in you. She just would have loved you. And she would have been right there at your side, um, fighting right alongside you.
1: Gina died of a drug overdose. She left behind a 10-month-old daughter. No one is quite sure whether Gina intentionally took her own life or overdosed by accident. We requested an interview with Parvez Yousefi, and he declined. This summer, I went to one of the last hearings of my case. While I was in the courthouse, I asked a producer to wait outside to try and get a statement from him.
5: Mr. Yussefi, Mr. Yusufi.
4: Uh four women have reported you to the police now. Do you have a what, what do you have to say to them?
2: Nothing. I mean, you. Ma'am, you guys no, comment. no idea. It's my turn. Yeah. Can talk, talk to the often, Ma'am, hey, look, they don't want to talk to you.
3: Are you going to go back to coaching young please, children?
2: Please let them pass. You can't chase them down.
1: Last month, there was a final hearing. I couldn't be there, but my dad went, and he called me right afterwards. So uh, what happened? Um,
2: Well, the bottom line, um, Christina Robinson said, uh, Mr. Youssefi has completed all terms. And um, the judge looked down at the paper and said, uh, the motion is granted, the matter is dismissed.
1: And then that was it.
0: That was it.
1: Yusefi's final plea was not guilty of the reduced charge contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Because he complied with his probation, his case is marked as dismissed. Now, if you look up his arrest record, it will show that he was originally charged with a felony aggravated sexual battery. And his mugshot will turn up in an internet search indefinitely but he was never put on the sex offender registry and he's free to work with kids again. People always ask me what I think should have happened to you, Yousefi. Years in prison, intensive counseling, I'm still not sure. All I know is this. When Gina Dodd told her school counselor about Yusefi. I hadn't even started taking gymnastics yet. If her case had moved forward, maybe I wouldn't have become his victim.
0: We want to thank independent producer Tennessee Watson for sharing her story with us. As we mentioned, the period of probation is over for Parviz Yusefi. Legally, he can work with kids again. We don't know if he plans to, but the gym is still open. On the website, Yusefi's wife and daughter are listed as co owners. If this topic is important to you, you can hear a very different version of this story on The Heart, a podcast about intimacy and humanity from PRX and Radiotopia. In a mini season of Heart episodes called Silent Evidence, Tennessee tells more about the emotional toll her abuse had on her and what finally led her to speak out and report it to the police. Those special episodes were produced by Caitlin Prest. Our episode today was produced by Laura Starcheski. Our senior editor was Deb George. Jim Briggs composed original music. Jocelyn Frank provided reporting help. We had help from the investigative reporting workshop at American University, Lynn Perry, David Donald, and Carol Elagin. Special thanks to Reveal's data team, including Jennifer LaFleur, Emmanuel Martinez, and Sanduja Rangarajan. Julia B. Chan produced our digital content. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note-Mullen. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg, and Amy Pyle is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado Lightning. Support for Reveal is provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Tennessee Watson's reporting was also made possible with funding from the IWMF Howard G. Buffett Fund for Women Journalists. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letton. and remember... There is always more to the story.